Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined today on what is for us a sunny afternoon by Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Uh, sunny day outside for me. I don't know where it is where you are, Simon, but uh, let's kick off as normal by talking about the markets and uh, what's been happening out there this week. Well, the sun has been shining on the markets to an extent this week. Uh, the Certainly the UK market will end up in positive territory, probably about half a percent up or so. Investment companies might be just slightly ahead of that. And certainly they'd have benefited from the sector average discount narrowing a little through the week, probably started about 2.8%, probably end the week nearer to 2 But despite the positive overall direction, probably markets lacked a little bit of clear direction this week. Certainly volumes appear to be down a little and probably prices were driven more by fundamentals, more by earnings updates. And certainly there's been a bit of chat about whether it's time to sell in May and go away. And I know some leading investors will probably have that opinion this year. Certainly if you look at how the UK market has performed year to date, it's probably up about 10% or so. The investment company sector, not quite as impressive as that, but slim positive territory, probably about up 6%. Right, indeed. And there's been, well, there's been a lot of, quite a lot of good economic news coming out of the United States, where the economy is roaring back. I think it's back almost to pre-pandemic levels. But of course, lots of other worrying news from, from the other side of the world in India and so on, where uh, the next wave of COVID is uh, causing a lot of issues. And I think there are concerns about inflation, of course, supply bottlenecks and so on. All these kind of issues are swirling around. The bond market, uh, bond yields have stopped going up, but we're not yet clear whether they're going to fall uh, from here or whether they're going to just consolidate or whether indeed they're going to push higher on fears of future inflation. All those issues are still to be played out. But as you say, we got off to a very good first quarter. It would be uh, remarkable and astonishing if that continued at this rate throughout the whole year. But we will no doubt find out. Let's kick off then with our corporate news, as always. And we're going to start off somewhat differently from most weeks by talking about a change in name. And uh, the change in name is that of Standard Life Aberdeen, the uh, fund management company, which announced this week that it's adopting a new name and a new brand. Can you tell us more about that, Simon? I can indeed, yeah. So, the, well, the new name is Aberdeen, but the, the thing that people have got very excited about is the way that it's uh, spelt. Effectively, it's spelt A-B-R-D-N. So, in other words, all the vowels have been removed. And uh, I think it's fair to say it's captured... Uh, the imagination. There's been a huge amount of media interest in this, in this uh, proposal. And uh, there have been some kind of amusing lines as well. People uh, assuming that this was an April the 1st prank, just uh, delayed somewhat. Uh, someone called it, is this a case of irritable vowel syndrome? I think that was one that certainly <laughs> made me chuckle. Very good. Yeah. The good people at Aberdeen suggested this is a brand that resonates in the sector, works digitally with our expanding customer and client base, and is clearly distinguishable identifiable. And in that, I think they're right. But there is a serious uh, implication, or maybe not serious, but there is a kind of um, something to consider anyway for the investment companies in the Aberdeen Standard Investment Stable, of which there are about 23. Uh, and it's an interesting stable. Obviously, it's quite a large stable, one of the largest investment trust stables, certainly by number, and, and not, uh, not doing too badly in terms of assets. And it re represents those investment trusts have come from a variety of sources, obviously, from Standard Investments, from that merger, obviously from Aberdeen, and also for various businesses that uh, Aberdeen acquired over the years. So if you look at those 23 investment trusts, uh, nine are branded Aberdeen, three are branded Aberdeen Standard, three still Standard Life, and there are eight who um, don't fall into any of those categories. So Murray International would be a case in point, Dunedin Income Growth, there's a, another specialist one, called well, Murray Income as well. North American Income Trust hasn't adopted any brand. Shire's Income. So you can see there's a, there's a plethora of different brands. And it does raise a question about how important is it for investment trusts to mirror uh, the branding of their investment management. Obviously, in the open-ended world, that's pretty much what happens. But in terms of investment trusts, the decision is in the hands of the non-executive directors and requires shareholder approval to change uh, the the company's name effectively. So again, we, we do see much more of variety, but uh, you wonder how many of the non-executive directors on the Aberdeen Standard Investment, uh, Investment Trust Boards will be looking to adopt the new brand. 
I think you will indeed. I noticed that the CEO who's introduced this new branding of uh, Standard Life Aberdeen, I mean, it is already slightly confusing that the listed company Standard Life Aberdeen is called Standard Life Aberdeen and the uh, asset manager business is called Aberdeen Standard Investments. That's already a bit of a confusion before you get there. But he described it as modern, dynamic and uh, most importantly, engaging. Well, it certainly engaged people in conversation. I think we can say that. Uh, this week, uh, whether it survives and whether it has any implications for boards of uh, investment trusts. But I think that'd be very interesting. My money would be, I have to say, as an initial reaction, that uh, I imagine some boards will be somewhat reluctant to go down a, a route, which I guess on the face of it might appear to be, uh, dare I say it, sort of slightly illiterate, however good looking the actual logo might be when the letters are incorporated. What do you think, Simon? I suspect you're not wrong. And actually talking to our friends at Aberdeen Standard Investments this week, there are a few, what should we say, red cheeks about the whole affair. I'm sure things will settle down, but um, I suspect the investor relations team at Aberdeen Standard Investments have, have earned their money this week. It's fair to say, I think, in their defence, there are some uh, issues about having all these confusing names that you have after a merger. And also that, uh, you know, it's not as if the investment trust sector doesn't have one or two kind of odd names, particularly the ones that I like to mention, like LXI and so on, which... Uh, you know, not immediately obvious what they are, indeed what the brand is, if there is one. You would say there probably isn't a brand there. I mean, the obvious one is Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. I mean, you know, to the casual observer, what on earth does that company do? Indeed. Well, it's Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> you can say that, but yeah. that's about as far as it goes. I agree. Not much to do with mortgages. Well, enough about that for the moment. I'm sure we'll be coming back to this uh, hugely important subject uh, later in weeks to come. There have been cases in the past, I believe, where companies have proposed a name change. I think PwC, the accountants, proposed changing their name to Monday at one point, and that was deemed to be sufficiently bizarre to uh, to be rejected and had to change their mind. I don't suppose that'll happen here, but we will have to wait and see. Let's move on and talk about some other corporate news. There's more on the issue of BH Global and BH Macro, the two Brevin Howard funds, which we've been talking about for the last two or three weeks at least. Where have we got to on that? There's been some more announcements this week about that. Yeah, that's right. And the story is kind of moving on apace, really. So BH Global announced that it had entered discussions with the board of BH Macro uh, with regard to the possibility of a combination of the two funds. This is expected to be structured in such a way that it's NAV accretive to all shareholders who uh, wish to maintain their investment in the ongoing vehicle. But equally, those shareholders who wish an exit should be given that uh, ability and to be fair, there was already a tender offer proposal on the table. Um, and they made it clear as well that the ongoing vehicle would adopt BH Macro's investment objectives. So the, the two funds, BH Global, BH Macro, there is an overlap. But to be clear, the future fund, the ongoing fund, will be run along the lines of BH Macro. So that seems to be quite positive. Um, talks are ongoing. And, and if we just remind ourselves, this really started with a initiative by one of their shareholders, one of the larger shareholders for both these vehicles, being Investec Wealth. Uh, and then Brevin Howard, Capital Management, the investment manager, basically made it clear that they were supportive uh, and positive. And then despite the fact that BH Global's board seem to be initially reticent about it. They've clearly been talked around or they can see the benefits. So um, I suspect we'll be talking about this one again in the weeks ahead. Yes, and it will be interesting to see because of the recent uh, fee increase proposal, which was uh, somewhat reluctantly uh, nodded through, it will be interesting to see how many shells when it comes to the crunch do actually tender their shares and leave the combined entity, assuming that it goes ahead. Do you have any more thoughts about that? Or do you think by the time we get to this point that uh, you know, memories are short and uh, most shareholders will, well, as it were, take their lumps as far as the fee increase is concerned, even if they weren't in favour of it? I mean, I think there will be inevitably some shareholders who, who will look to exit. But um, lest we forget, the, the, these two investment companies combined, roughly speaking, um, have assets of around about a billion pounds. So even if there were to be a substantial exit, a combined entity would still uh, have its own gravity, it would still be, one would assume, relatively liquid. And for an outfit such as Investec Wealth or any other uh, wealth manager, it would still be of an attractive size. So I think that's a very important consideration in this. And, you know, as we've discussed in weeks gone by, there aren't that many hedge funds left in the listed investment companies space. So if you do want this kind of exposure uh, and the track record, again, as we've discussed last year, was was good. It did its job at a time of uh, you know very difficult market conditions. It performed well. And that's what people are looking for here. They're looking for a diversifier. 
so one would assume that there will be enough interest for an ongoing vehicle. I suppose the only other point to make is that from the point of view of Brevin Howard, if they end up uh, doubling their fees but, but end up with only half the assets of the two combined trusts, they're going to be basically back to where they started in terms of fee income. But they will have made a point, I suppose, that's the first thing. And secondly, they will have you know, built a platform that will remain at that, uh, that level. And if the trusts continue to grow, they will obviously get more income out of that as well. I think that uh, follows. I don't suppose that as many as 50% will uh, tender their shares, but we'll find out. Next up, we're going to talk about uh, Dunedin Income Growth, DIG, which has published a manual results uh, this week. But before we talk about those, um, they've also made another interesting announcement, and uh, perhaps we might talk about that for a moment. Yes, that's right. So as part of those annual results, they've put proposals on the table uh, for shareholders to vote on at the AGM to adopt what they're calling an enhanced ESG uh, approach. So ESG is the acronym that's uh, really the buzz acronym, if such a thing exists in the investment management world at the moment. So it's uh, it's looking at those factors, environmental, social and governance is what the, the it stands for. But in this instance, it's referring to excluding certain types of companies. So in particular, uh, tobacco and uh, weapons and those uh, oil and gas companies that don't comply with their renewables target. So this is an interesting proposal. They've made it very clear this is not necessarily a change of uh, uh, dividend policy. There won't be a change of dividend policy. The, the principles of their investment approach will remain the same. And they said that actually, this, so this is part of the Aberdeen Standard Investments stable, funnily enough, but they've, they've said that actually they've got the ESG framework in place already. So what are they talking about in practical terms? Well, they estimate that it's about 8% of the portfolio will be um, impacted if this proposal goes ahead, though that 8% actually does equate for 16% of the income. And this fund sits in the UK equity income space, so that's not unimportant. But they estimate that they will shrink their uh, investable universe by about 23%. So it's, it's something that does need careful consideration. Ben Ritchie, who's the uh, investment manager of this one, spoke about this uh, earlier in the week at the, the time of the announcement, and he's clearly quite passionate about um, the ability to invest on this basis and actually generate good returns and attractive level of income for, for shareholders. He made the point that actually 20% of the fund can be invested overseas, and actually they've got a number of European companies already in the portfolio, and also said that actually they're finding very interesting opportunities away from those very kind of large cap names. We asked him about whether, you know, what about um, companies that, that are involved in alcohol or gambling and all the rest of it, and, and that isn't part of this particular mandate. He said we want to avoid value judgments, tobacco aside, and it's really about uh, the focus on climate, and it's something that they've talked to a number of shareholders about uh, and believe will be well received. Uh, though interest, interesting, we did ask him about the brand uh, and, and possibly would we see a name change for Dunedin Income Growth to reflect this change uh, should it be successful. And uh, that remains to be seen. Though it's the kind of thing that you could imagine uh, SRI uh, being another acronym kind of creeping into the title at some stage. Yeah, so this is all consistent with this trend, as you say, to emphasize ESG factors in uh, investment processes uh, because it's believed that's what... Uh, an increasing number of shareholders want, and also that it's consistent with the uh, obligations to the planet, if you like. I mean, Dunedin Income Growth, tell us about that. Tell us about it as a, as a trust. Uh, obviously, you said it's in the Aberdeen Standard Stable, but where does it sit in, the, in its sector? And is this kind of an attempt to differentiate itself? Uh, and do you think it'll be successful? So it's in the UK equity income subsector. It's got a pretty decent performance record. Let me give you some numbers around that. So on a five-year NAV total return basis, it's up 62%. Uh, and that compares with a rise of 40% for the FTSE All Shares. You can see it's outperformed over five years. And actually, it's been on, on a bit of an interesting journey. So they've made it clear a number of years ago, actually, that they were less focused on on just investing in higher yielding companies and just really kind of clipping the dividends. And they really wanted to generate capital growth as well. Uh, and that was done a few years ago. And you can see that coming through in terms of their, their numbers. Their performance record is, is strong, certainly over that five-year period and indeed over the three-year period as well. In terms of the yield, on a historic basis, it's 4.1%. So again, that stacks up uh, well uh, against its peers. Probably the weighted average of that UK equity income peer group at the moment is 3.8%. So it's certainly higher than the, the average there. 
and uh, trading I've got on a very small discount at the moment, probably about a 1% or so. It may even be a little bit tighter by now, but uh, that represents a little bit of a re-rating from what we've seen over the last 12 months, probably average nearer to 5 or 6% over the last 12 months. So I guess if there is uh, renewed interest in this trust or, or extra interest in this trust from investors who like this kind of approach or think it's going to be profitable, that could then uh, bring the discount in. They could maybe issue shares. Have they issued shares in the past? Presumably not recently. But do you think that's uh, that's an ambition they might have? I think it's very important to differentiate your, your, yourself in this day and age. I mean, the UK equity income subsector is a highly competitive one. Um, there's some very well-known, very strong funds in there, very strong long-term track records. Uh, we talked about City of London Investment Trust, Finsby Grafen and Income, uh, and even its stablemate, Murray Income, that, that benefited from the merger last year with uh, perpetual income and growth, and now finds itself with a, a market cap of over a billion pounds. So they're probably the largest names in this space, but it is a highly competitive area. And it's one, I think, that has proven popular within the investment trust world. The fact that, you know, we talked about the greater dividend certainty that investment trusts can provide. And you can find a number of very good examples in this particular space. But clearly, it's important to differentiate yourself. And by adopting this policy, should shareholders be supportive, then, then it would be differentiated. We haven't seen anything quite like this, not in the UK space. I mean, I think we're going to come on to talk about uh, Keystone a bit later on. And, and obviously, there, were, there was some talk in the media recently about Lion Trust possibly launching uh, a new fund with an SRI type mandate. But it seems to me that within the investment trust universe overall, compared with the open-ended fund uh, equivalents, that, that perhaps investment trusts are lagging a little bit in this regard at present. Yes, that's certainly my impression that, uh, as you say, in relative terms, the investment trust sector is a little bit slower embracing this. They're, they're perhaps doing it in more interesting ways with some of the specialist trusts that are looking to offer a kind of social impact mandate, which would, uh, is a slightly kind of extension of this approach. Well, we've only to see how that one goes. It'll stay in the equity income sector, though, you think. I assume it won't be kind of rebranded as a candidate for another sector. As the great expert on this matter, Simon, what do you think? Well, I, I don't want to prejudge what my colleagues on the AIC Stats Committee, I think you're referring to, what they may opine on this. But I, I mean, my personal view for what it's worth is I think it would make sense to stay in the UK equity income space because even if it's a slightly different take uh, and, and is differentiated as discussed from its peers, um, it's still essentially a largely UK-based portfolio and trying to generate attractive uh, income and capital growth for its investors. Okay, so before we go back and talk about the results, let's move on and talk about a couple of other corporate announcements or corporate activity. Let's start with M&G Credit Income, MGCI. M&G, obviously a well-known name in bond funds management. Uh, what have they had to say well, they announced this week that they're looking to adopt a zero discount policy. And the board have said that they believe it's very important for shareholders to benefit from the, the, the fund's investment objective, uh, to obviously to generate a regular and attractive level of income, but with low asset volatility. So this is um, uh, an interesting development. So M&G Credit Income, um, it's been around a few years now. It was trading before this announcement on about a 4% or so discounts are not uh, very wide by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, in the last 12 months, it's probably averaged just slightly wider than, than 4%. But clearly, there has been a bit of discount volatility, as there has, frankly, for most investment companies over the last 12 months, for obvious reasons. Uh, but in, in adopting this kind of policy, um, it gives the fund uh, probably a better chance to grow. I'm sure that's the kind of rationale behind it. We've seen a number of investment trust companies adopt zero discount policies over the years. Probably the best known is Personal Assets, run by Sebastian Lyon of Troy Asset Management. And indeed, its stablemate, Troy Income and Growth, uh, also uh, has adopted and run a very successful zero discount policy. But thereafter, there are a few others. Martin Curry Portfolio adopted it. And there was a little wave of um, investment companies going down this route, but not to any great impact. Capital Gearing Trust, again, sorry, it just popped into my head. That's one that certainly has been successful and it has allowed some growth. But um, the point is that it takes the share price of volatility off the table if they can uh, adopt and pursue this policy successfully uh, and therefore just bring that relationship between the share price and the NAV ever closer. So are there others in this sector who uh, have adopted a zero discount policy? Obviously not by, uh, by implication what you've just been saying. Uh, it's quite an interesting. I mean, the debt, these are all kind of debt funds, essentially. Loans and bonds, I think, is the name of the sector in the AIC category. There's quite a few funds in there, but uh, 
most of them are trading on a discount, I think. So presumably, if there are any discount policies there, they're not being successful so far. Yeah, I mean, this is the only uh, one that's looking to adopt this policy, to my knowledge. Um, you're right. There is there's quite a range of ratings in this sector. Actually, it's a, it's a slightly funny one. You do have uh, a number on on premium ratings. So, uh, City Merchants High Yield, uh, which I think as we discussed recently, is looking to uh, merge with Invesco Enhanced Income, trading around NAV or maybe on a small premium. Uh, and then you've got funds, well, effectively managed wind down. So, MB Distressed Debt being a case in point on quite wide discount levels, though. As, as mentioned, that they're on their way out. So you do see a whole range. It's interesting, maybe, uh, who knows, maybe if M&G credit income adopt this policy, prove that it works uh, and enables them to, to grow and takes that share price volatility off the table, then, then others will look at it. Uh, but that remains to be seen. So far, uh, as far as I'm aware, the only investment trust companies that have adopted zero discount policies uh, and, and pursued them for a period of time being those kind of what we'd call long-only equity funds. So those uh, more conventional plays. Finally, on the corporate activity uh, segment of the podcast, let's talk about River and Mercantile UK Microcap, RMMC, River and Mercantile UK Microcap. Been on a bit of a tear recently, obviously investing in the very smallest end of the listed market. Uh, and they made an announcement as well. What have they said? That's right. Well, they announced this week their intention to undertake a fifth compulsory redemption uh, so this is with regards to they've got a redemption mechanism. So it's quite an unusual investment trust company, this one, in as much as it was it's quite clearly stated at its launch that it never wished to run more than 100, £110 million pounds of assets. Uh, and that was because they wanted to retain a relatively tight capital pool uh, in order to have a relatively tight concentrated portfolio. Uh, and that's meant that to date there's been four returns of capital as the as the fund has performed and pushed through that 110 million or so kind of level of assets. So at the moment, uh, their net assets are kind of standing above 120 million. So the idea is that they uh, will look to return a further 20 million to shareholders. So they've already returned 15 million uh, back in February this year. Uh, so they will look to return 20 million in May. So this, and as you say, this is a function of the fact that this particular investment trust is performing well at the moment. So just again, to put some numbers on that, over the last six months uh, in NAV terms, it's up 53%. Uh, and as you say, it's been on a bit of a tear. Indeed, I think it's uh, actually doubled over the course of a year, has it not? Something like that. So it's got to its limit quite quickly, showing how uh, how strong the recovery has been down at the lower end of the market capitalization scale. So let's move on and talk about some fundraising. We're never far from a fundraising announcement these days. The first one up is our old friend Hypnosis Songs Fund. Song, S-O-N-G, Hypnosis. What have they had to say? Yep, they had a little placing this week. And I say little, I don't want to be disparaging. It was about 9 million uh, shares. They placed out 119 spot 5p. So uh, they announced that uh, a revised NAV at the end of April of 118 spot 4 Nine p. In other words, this placing was at a little bit of a premium, as you'd expect. So that, in the context of the the size that this fund has now reached, which is about one point three billion pounds, it's a relatively modest issuance. It raises just short of eleven million pounds. But what it does, it just means that the that the premium doesn't become too extended, and that's not unimportant actually. If liquidity comes a little bit tight and the market makers become short of shares, it sometimes helps to put a little uh, a few more shares in circulation and just ensures that that uh, premium doesn't go a little bit out of control. So at least, as I recall, the last fundraising they did it was slightly disappointing. They didn't get as much money as they wanted. But it does show that the, there's still demand for these shares if they can place them at uh, at a modest premium. No, I think that's right. I mean, the, the share price has you know, been a little bit volatile, I think it's fair to say. But again, that's probably in reaction as much of possibly to some of the media interest uh, in this particular fund. So if you go back to towards the end of February, it hit about 114p. Uh, and then within a couple of weeks, or if not a month, it was back at 125p. So for an asset class that's meant to be relatively stable, long-term cash generative, there is a degree of volatility in Hypnosis' share price. Uh, and again, uh, I suspect there would be some interest in just making sure that the, the share price and the NAV stayed vaguely in line with each other. Okay, so uh, let's move on and talk about Impact Healthcare, REIT. IHR. Uh, this is one, I think, of two trusts which specialise in uh, care homes and uh, looking after the sick and the elderly. Obviously, they've been in the front line of the war against uh, COVID. But uh, 
They've managed to raise some money. How much are they raising and what are they proposing to do with it, Sam? Well, they raised £35 million. That was through a placing of just short of 32 million shares at a price of 111 spot 5p. Uh, they had been looking to raise about 50 million, so a little bit short of what they were targeting. But they've said they will use those net proceeds to repay amounts drawn under their credit facility and also uh, to fund new investments. So this is a portfolio that's been built up over a number of years, run by uh, Andrew Cowley and Mahesh Patel. And they've diversified the portfolio out in terms of tenants and, and properties and they believe that there's quite a big opportunity in terms of the investment pipeline. So those new shares that were issued as part of that place in begin to trade on the 6th of May. And uh, just how are these uh, social care trusts been performing? They're still trading at premiums, I imagine, and uh, still offering a reasonable yield. Uh, that's exactly right. Yeah, so Impact Healthcare obviously just had the, the issuance, but they're obviously trading on a, on a premium for about a 3% premium. So Target Healthcare... Uh, as you as you noted, they raised uh, a little bit of money recently as well. Their premiums probably a little bit higher, actually, probably nearer to ten percent. Uh, but their respective yields they're very similar, actually, on it. So looking at their historic dividend patterns, Impact Healthcare on about five point six percent yield at the moment, and Target Healthcare five point seven percent. So not an awful lot in it. Okay, and finally in this section, let's move on and talk about another possible IPO. This is uh, an interesting one. It is a company called Taylor Maritime Investments Limited, or will be anyway. And uh, what do we know about that, uh, Simon? Well, I've got to be honest, I don't know an awful lot apart from what they've said to the marketplace so far. But they're looking to raise um, or target issue size, certainly of 250 million new shares. And then they will be placed out at a dollar a go. So in other words, trying to raise $250 million. This will be an internally managed investment company. Uh, and they will look to invest that in a diversified portfolio of vessels uh, that will primarily be second-hand geared ships, uh, handy size and super max types, uh, which I've got to be honest, doesn't mean an awful lot to me. But uh, they, they say that the fund will be managed by an experienced team from the Taylor Maritime Group. Unsurprisingly, perhaps they will target uh, quite a substantial dividend yield of 7% uh, on the initial issue price, and that will be paid quarterly. Uh, and they believe that there will be potential for growth for that one over the long term. The initial dividend is always quite important, and the guidance they've given on that is that they expect to declare their first dividend of one spot seven five cents uh, for the initial period ended the thirtieth of September this year. So they'll they'll pay a dividend in a relatively short order. But uh, over the long term, the NAV total return target is between ten and twelve percent. And they've already got a significant C portfolio assembled. So actually, this is quite important because, um, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, the last thing you want is to have a pool of capital that takes some time to deploy. So they've got this C portfolio lined up, and that will comprise of 23 handy size and super max dry bulk vessels. Uh, and they expect the net proceeds of the IPO to be fully committed shortly after admission. And in fact, part of the consideration for the C portfolio is to be uh, through the issue of new shares. So that, that is an interesting uh, development. As I say, I, I don't know too much about this one, but clearly it looks to be a direct competitor to Tufton Oceanic, which is a, an investment company that we discussed before. Uh, and that has a market cap of about uh, just short of $270 million and yields just short of 7%. Yes, yeah, so it'll be interesting to find out more details about that. Obviously, as like you, I, it's a long time since I looked at the shipping market. I used to have a little bit of interest in that. But the idea of a handy-sized dry bulk vessel uh, it seems a bit of a contradiction in terms to me, but I'm sure it's all relative. Uh, if they're looking to raise $250 million and they're going to be investing in 23 dry bulk vessels, uh, it's not clear, though, is it, whether they're going to be um, leasing these vessels or building them or whatever they're going to be doing or buying. Well, they're secondhand, so they won't, won't be building them. So it'll be interesting to see what they actually do. I think the only thing I would say is that the shipping market is um, obviously has recovered very strongly after last year's uh, pandemic uh, sell-off, but it's normally quite a sort of cyclical industry, is it not? So you might think there might be a bit of a conflict here between the cyclicality of the business and the desire to produce a, a you know consistent regular return. However, we'll have to wait and see what they have to say. Let's move on then and talk about some results. Henderson International Income, H-I-N-T or HINT. They've had some interim results. How well have they done? So they had interim results for the six months to the end of February. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 8.4%. Uh, 
and that compared with 7.1% for their benchmark, the MSCI World XUK Index. It's worth noting that this uh, investment trust, it's a global equity income play, is differentiated by the fact it excludes the UK from its investment. So in share price terms, not quite so good, uh, up 4.6% on a total return basis, uh, and they declared uh, two interim dividends of 1.5p each. Their revenue return for the period was 1.68p. But they've made it clear their intention is to at least maintain the same level of dividend for the remaining six months of the year. So things that worked well for them in, in the period, they had exposure to semiconductors and financial services, and that was good, and also gearing, uh, which stood at 14% at the end of February. That was positive. However, detractors, including stocks in the pharmaceutical, telecommunications and consumer staples sectors, uh, they weren't quite so good. And, and that's a familiar story, actually. Clearly, that particular period, um, a lot of the more cyclical stocks did quite well, uh, one of the kind of high growth areas. And that's certainly the case in this instance. I can't resist uh, commenting that uh, um, Janus Henderson is now following a merger, is a uh, substantial farm management group. They haven't looked to change either their own name or the uh, the names of the investment trust or the boards of the investment trust not change their names because Henderson has a long history in the investment trust, I think it's fair to say, whereas uh, Janus Henderson, of course, is, has none. So I don't suppose there's any chance that they'll be changing their names anytime soon. Uh, I would suspect you're probably right. Let's move on then to talk about the trust you've already mentioned uh, in passing, Keystone Positive Change, KPC. This is now managed by Bailey Gifford, who took it over from another fund management group uh, with a very different mandate. They've just produced their first set of results under this name. Can you tell us um, what have they done? Yeah, so we had interim results for the six-month period to the end of March. And it's always worth noting where you have these manager changes. You, you, you can't get too caught up in the numbers here. So for what they're worth, the NAV total return was down 0.9% in that period. And that compares with 14% for a comparative index, which is effectively the FTSE All Share to the 10th of February this year, uh, when it was part of uh, the Invesco stable. And thereafter, when it moved to Bailey Gifford, the MSCI All Country World. Uh, and then the share price total return was up about 15%. And that reflects the fact that discount narrowed um, from quite a big discount from about 17% to, to 4.5% following the move to Bailey Gifford. But, uh, you know, more importantly, what's happened literally in the last six weeks of this period when Bailey Gifford got its hands on it? So the answer is that it's been completely reorganised, obviously a different mandate. 33 uh, global growth equities have, have been uh, purchased, and that's very much focused on this kind of positive social and environmental change uh, that we kind of addressed earlier. There's a few legacy holdings left. At the end of March, they had four legacy liquid holdings, and there was a small balance left on, a, on an ETF. And I'm sure that that will be uh, sorted out in time. But it's just the other kind of point worth noting on this, and we were already aware of this, is that as part of that change to uh, Bailey Gifford, the board made it clear that it would change its dividend policy going forward. At the moment, for this period, it's going to be maintained. But the direction of travel is given the investment approach. The dividend will no longer be at the level that it has been historically. So a complete change of policy under Bailey Gifford. But with that re-rating, it's obviously had a positive start. Yes, I think it's fair to say that unlike Temple Bar, which we were talking about the other day, which uh, the new management uh, team took over almost to the day when we had the vaccine news and, and, the, and the markets took off. So they got off to a flying start. I think it's fair to say that for Bailey Gifford, which has had this sensational year uh, across the firm with its growth strategy uh, last year, they actually took over at about the peak this year. So they got off to a very sticky start. Uh, I think their performance was actually down uh, in the first uh, few weeks, but they seem to be recovering. So that'll be interesting to follow that one, how that plays out. Uh, obviously, style factors are a factor there, and the fact uh, that it's no longer going to be marketed as a as an income generating trust, but as a growth trust. Which sector is it now going to sit in, um, Simon? So we have it in the global sector. So alongside Monks and Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, and then other other non Bailey Gifford names such as Bankers Witten FNC Investment Trust. So in that in that bracket. So it has migrated from where it was before. Okay, let's move on and touch on the results of Dunedin Income Growth, DIG, Dunedin Income Growth. We talked about them just a few minutes ago about their new ESG approach, but they've also had some annual results and uh, we need to just quickly summarise what they, what, how they performed. Yeah, so they had a good year, actually. This is the year to the end of January. The NAV total return just down very slightly, 0.3%, and that compared with a decline of 7.5% for the FTSE all share. 
Share price total return actually in positive territory at 0.1% up. So a number of holdings work well for them. Weir Group, Genus and ASML, and also they benefited from being underweight oil and gas. Earnings per share was down just under 10%, uh, and obviously that compares with a, a far greater fall for the wider UK market, uh, and that gave them earnings per share of 10.9%, and yet they increased their dividend modestly by 0.8% to 12.8p. So an uncovered dividend, but again, that's relatively common in that UK equity income peer group at present. Indeed, and uh, I can cannot resist again also commenting in passing that Dunedin Income Growth uh, whatever its origins were, they were a long time ago because it started out in uh, 1873. So it's been going a long time. Let's move on and talk about Troy Income and Growth, TIGT, Troy Income and Growth. You mentioned them as well or recently uh, today. So what about them? What are their latest results show? So these are interim results to the end of March, a more difficult period for Troy Income and Growth, actually. So the NAV total return was up 2.6% in that time. And that compares to a rise for the FTSE All Share of 18.5%. The share price total return was 1.1%. And in fact, these are one of the, these funds, as we mentioned earlier, that pursue a, a zero discount policy. And they bought back 11.3 million shares in that six-month period. But really, the story here is that their underperformance was a result of the derating, as they put it, of core quality growth investments. Certainly in that period, banks did very well. Oil and gas did very well. And that's not areas that this particular investment trust plays in. Uh, although they did use the kind of volatility and the shift in the market leadership to buy new holdings with higher dividend growth. And it's worth noting, actually, on their dividend side. So they have rebased uh, their dividends. So quarterly dividends of 0.49p have been paid in respect uh, of the period. And that represents a decline of uh, just short of 30% year on year. Yes, I recall that last year they made uh, some play of the fact that they were changing their dividend strategy. They believe that the UK market in particular were the yields on some of the big name dividend payers in the UK market were, if you like, over distributing. They wouldn't they were paying dividends that they would not be sustainable over time and that they preferred to switch to approach which emphasized lower yields, initial yields, but ones that had more potential for growth over time. Well obviously that needs a bit more time to uh, to play out. There's also going to be a management change there, is there not, as I recall, Simon? That's absolutely right. So Francis Brook, who's been involved with this investment trust for a number of years, he's taken a step back. He will become the vice chair of Triassic Management, so this particular fund's investment management at the end of the year. And Hugo Year, who's been working on this one for some time, will continue. And Blake Hutchins uh, is alongside him as well. So there is continuity there. Okay, so let's move overseas now. We can talk about uh, Aberdeen New Tie, ANW. No prizes for guessing which stable this one comes from. Let's uh, talk about their latest results, Simon. So they had annual results to the end of February, a bit of a tricky period for them. So their NAV total return was up 1.2%, and that compared with a rise of 10.1% for the SET, which stands for the Stock Exchange of Thailand Index. In share price terms, they did a little bit better, actually up 4.5%. But the, the investment manager made the comment that actually performance had been hampered by low exposure to technology, in particular one stock called Delta Electronics that did particularly well, and also their revenue per share was down about 26% in the year. And this, this particular fund does have a relatively decent yield, and the total dividend 19p uh, was unchanged. But uh, something worth noting is that we knew this last year, it was made clear last year, but if this particular investment trust underperforms the index in the three years to the end of February 2023, a full review of the investment management arrangements will then be held, and that may include uh, an option for a cash redemption. So it's still got two years to go on that, clearly, but certainly in that first year period was a difficult one for them. Uh, this is a relatively small trust already, not surprisingly, perhaps, because you might wonder you know, how many investors out there want to invest specifically in the Thai market or companies that have a relationship with Thailand. It all goes back to there was quite a fad for these specialist country trusts back in the 1990s, as I recall. So what do you think? If they don't beat the target by that uh, two-year time frame, presumably their future will be very much in question, would it not? Well, I think you make a good point about the size. So the market cap at the moment is £71 million. So assuming that it stays around that kind of level, and clearly the hope from Aberdeen Stanley Investments that they managed to grow this fund. But um, if it were to, to contract or, or shrink considerably, then 
um, it starts to become quite a liquid and, and drops off the radar, if it isn't already, to be honest, for a number of investors. But clearly a very specialist mandate that the single country funds invariably are. But two years to go, so that there's still time and uh, to turn performance around on this one. Indeed there is. So let's talk about uh, Bailey Gifford China Growth Trust, BGCG, which is uh, obviously one of the big three trusts operating uh, with a specialist China mandate. This is a relatively new vehicle under Bailey Gifford's control, at least. What have they been saying about their results? Well, again, this is one of these periods where we've seen a change of manager during the year, but it was the annual results to the end of January this year. In that time, the investment trust generated an NAV total return of 38%, and that compared with 22% for its benchmark. Obviously, the benchmark changed during that period. In share price terms, it was actually a spectacular period in as much as the share price return was up 68% as its rating moved from an 8% discount to an 11% premium. So the story here is that it moved to Bailey Gifford uh, in September last year. And actually since that point, so the 16th of September last year to the end of January, and against a relevant index, it outperformed. So the NAV was up nearly 25%, and that compared with about 12% for its benchmark. But quite interesting investment managers report. Roderick Snell has taken this one over. They've made their first private investment in a company called ByteDance, which is quite, uh, I think, a quite a well-known company in China. Um, they've seen lots of opportunities on the healthcare side. And although it's very early days for this particular investment trust, you, you get the sense that the manager is genuinely excited about the opportunities for this one. Yes, I'm right, though, am I not, that the Chinese trust, all three of them, uh, did roar ahead quite strongly. And they've actually uh, come back a bit. The ratings have uh, moved down a little bit in the last few weeks. Uh, where are they sitting at now across that particular sector? You're absolutely right. There was clearly a lot of demand for China at one stage. The, the, the ratings are still pretty respectable, to be perfectly honest. So Bailey Gifford, uh, China Growth, that's still on a premium rating, probably on about a 9% premium at the moment. Uh, the Fidelity China Fund, the Special Sits Fund, that's on a very small discount, probably less than 1%. And the JP Morgan China Growth and Income Fund, that's on a, on a 2% premium. So the, the, the ratings are still pretty decent. Okay, let's move on and talk about uh, BlackRock Greater Europe, BRGE, obviously a BlackRock trust. Perhaps you might remind us what uh, Greater Europe is uh, for this purpose and how they've been performing. So they had interim results out for the six months to the end of February. In that time, their NAV total return was up 14%, and that compared with 8% or so for the FTSE World Europe X UK index, so quite a decent level outperformance. And that was a result of positive stock selection, uh, and they also did quite well in terms of their sector allocations as well. Um, the fund is set up to be underweight, or it is at the moment, underweight defensive areas and also kind of more select areas, value areas such as banks. So that was all good. In share price terms, actually, it was even stronger. So the share price total return was up about 19% as the shares moved from a 3% discount to a 1% premium. So all in all, uh, a decent uh, six-month period for this one. It's run by Stefan Gries and Sam Vecht. And actually, Sam is responsible for the, the kind of greater element. So this mandate has for oh, quite some time now had the ability to invest in Eastern European countries as well. So though it's a relatively small part of the portfolio, its mandate allows it to do it. And that's where Sam Vectu uh, is also responsible for BlackRock Frontiers. And it is quite a well-known investor in emerging markets. Uh, that's where he takes some responsibility. OK, so we'll move on and we'll talk about uh, Fidelity Asian Values. FAS, one of uh, a series of the Fidelity Investment Trusts in uh, specific regions. How have their results been? So they had interim results out for a six-month period to the end of January. And again, a pretty decent set of results. NAV total return up about 22.5%, and that compared with a, a rise of 20% for the benchmark. In share price terms, uh, even stronger, actually nearly up 28%. And again, stock selection was key here. Uh, and just to be clear, this is an Asian small cap play. So some quite interesting names in the portfolio and also in terms of its kind of geographic weighting. So um, probably more balanced than you would see from more mainstream Asian portfolios. So India, about 24% of its assets, China, 23%. And then there's a big weighting to Korea as well. But the, the manager highlighted the fact that despite that strong performance, the portfolio trades on a lower P.E. ratio than the benchmark, uh, and then it has a higher return on equity and a higher dividend yield. Uh, and this one is run by a chap called Nitin Badger, 
who's been responsible uh, since 2015. So he's just exceeded six years as investment manager here. Okay, moving on to uh, another specialist country trust, which is Vietnam Enterprise Investments. It's one of uh, a handful of trusts that specialize in Vietnam. Uh, There's only one investing in Thailand. How have they been doing? Yes, they had their annual results out for the year to the end of December, so 2020, basically. They've got a set of results again. NAV total return up nearly 23%, and that uh, represents an outperformance of the relevant index there by about 5 5.5%. Uh, so they had a number of stocks that worked for them particularly well. And it's worth noting, actually, that this one is run by Dragon Capital, quite well-known uh, specialist investors in, and, and based in Vietnam. Uh, and this particular investment trust company has been up and running since 1995. So they've been doing this for some time. They're differentiated by they can invest up to 15% in illiquid strategies or illiquid companies. So that gives them a little bit of leeway. They call it investing in pre-IPO companies. Yes, I think I mentioned before that uh, Vietnam is an interesting uh, destination for investors. It is a communist country, but it actually has was voted as the most capitalist uh, country in a, in a survey by some international organization. They do have a strong and thriving uh, kind of business culture there. What kind of returns have you made from investing in Vietnam over the last few years? So if you, you look over the last three years in NAV terms, uh, NAV total return about 32%. They've been a bit more stronger recently, up 69% in the last year, the last 12 months, though, frankly, everyone's done quite well over the last 12 months. But uh, in share price terms, not dissimilar, actually, over the last three years, total return 38%. And just to give that some context, Vietnam Opportunity, which is also in its uh, subsector, is up 45% in share price terms over that three-year period. So now we can get on to some not regional specialists, but uh, specialist trusts of various kinds. Let's start off with Baker Steel Resources Trust, which, as its name suggests, invests in resources and particularly in miners, I think. How well have they done? They had a good year in 2020. So this is the results to the end of December. In NAV total return terms, they were up 31.5%, and that compared with a 22.2% increase of their index. Their benchmark in share price terms, they did even better, just short of 36% increase. So that worked well for them. Again, it's quite a specialist mandate within the commodities sector. And they made it clear that in this particular year, they focused on supporting some of their investee companies with uh, additional financing. But they're in negotiations to sell Bilbo's. Uh, and that represents just short of 20% of their NAV or 20% of their NAV as at the end of December. And if that is uh, successful, they reckon it's about £20 million of proceeds which represents a return of four times on their original investment. And they've said that if they are successful, at least 15% of realised gains will be distributed to shareholders and a major portion of the sale proceeds will be invested into advanced pre-IPO opportunities. Yes, well, as we mentioned with some of the other uh, trusts in the uh, commodities and natural resources sector, it's obviously very volatile because commodities and natural resources are generally commodities that are very volatile. And they obviously done very well in the recovery, but suffered before that. Tell us about the sector they're in. They're in the environmental, uh, commodities, natural resources sector. Sorry, not the environmental one. Whoops, bit of a slip of the tongue there. <laughs> but uh, how has that uh, sector performed and what kind of vehicles do we find there? Well, there's some quite interesting names and, and quite different strategies. So the, the largest by some distance is the BlackRock World Mining Investment Trust. Uh, and obviously, we've talked about that on a number of occasions and certainly they perform very strongly. NAV total return performance over five years of 171%. Uh, but Baker Steel Resources are not too far behind over that same time period, five years. Their NAV total return is up 164%. Uh, and yet they are trading on a, on a bit of a discount, about 9% or so at the moment. Uh, and obviously, they are substantially smaller. So a market cap of less than uh, 100 million. So they'll be off the radar for a, a number of investors. But also interesting names in that space. BlackRock actually have two uh, investment trusts, as well as World Mining. They're responsible for a fund called BlackRock Energy and Resources Income. uh, And that has, as the name would suggest, a yield uh, of over 4%, 4 4.1% at the moment. Obviously, that's a key part of that particular fund strategy. Okay, we've got more results to get through. So we'll race on a little bit here. Let's talk next about ICG Enterprise Trust. This is a private equity trust, I think. What has their results been like? Yep, so these were annual results to the end of January. 
again, a strong strong period for ICG Enterprise Trust. Uh, in that time, they generated an NAV total return of 22.5%, and that compares with a, a decline of 7.5% for the FTSE All Share. Uh, the share price was not quite so strong. Um, it was positive up about uh, just under 3% or so. But the NAV performance was really driven by their technology and tech-enabled holdings. That included uh, exposure to uh, a listed company in America called Chewy, which is involved in the pets business, uh, and that performed particularly well. But they actually saw three of their top 30 companies listed in the period as well, including uh, Dr. Martins, who I'm sure uh, a company that people will be very familiar with. Um, but a good period in terms of investment activity, total proceeds of over £200 million, uh, while uh, new investments uh, totaled just short of £140 million. So they were kind of net cash in that time. Okay, let's move on to another specialist trust, International Biotech. Very different sort of business, I imagine. Interim results uh, for the six months to 28th of February, 2021. Yep, and their NAV total return in that time was up just short of 7%. uh, And that was actually uh, underperformance compared with the benchmark. Uh, That was up 11.5%. And indeed, it kind of lagged the wider UK market. Share price time is a little bit better, up 9.5%. But effectively, the quoted portfolio, uh, which is the bulk of the net assets, just short of uh, 90%, that was up 6%, whereas the, the unquoted element uh, performed strongly in the period, up 26%. And that's despite a couple of the, the smaller names being uh, written down. So, yeah, it's interesting portfolio in as much as it is differentiated by having uh, exposure to, to private companies. And in this particular company, they were the ones that performed well. Let's move on and talk about RTW Venture Fund. We mentioned them the other day. Uh, RTW Venture Fund, this is also, I think, has an interest in uh, similar sort of investments. How have they performed? Yes, that's right. Absolutely. In the same kind of area. So these were annual results to the end of December last year, uh, in which time their NAV total return was up 54%, which represented quite a bit of outperformance, certainly of the NASDAQ Biotech Index, which was up 27%. Share price, not quite as impressive, but still up 37%. So um, at the end of 2020, the fund held 22 what they described as core portfolio companies, uh, and that represented just short of 70% of the NAV. And nine are publicly listed and 13 privately held. 25% of the portfolio is invested in non-core portfolio holdings, and they've also got a bit of cash as well. So um, it's an interesting portfolio. It's still relatively early days for this one. It only came to the market uh, back in October 2019, RTW Investments, headed by Roderick Wong, is responsible for this one. And we'll, you know, we're seeing how it develops, but but certainly that was a good period for them last year. Yes, I noticed that they've obviously performed very well. The shares traded at a premium, and uh, they, I think they're looking to uh, move on to a different sector of the of the London market. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, they're looking to move to the premium segment of the main market. So this kind of brings them into the mainstream uh, a bit more. And they're looking to have a, a sterling line as well. So that would mean they could be uh, included in the FTSE UK. So this is all about becoming a more mainstream investment company. And also they're looking to raise additional capital as well. So expect to hear more about this one. Yes, it's not one that I'm particularly familiar with, but I actually see that it's quite a decent size already, even though uh, it's uh, perhaps not under the radar of some people. Let's move on and talk about another trust that is uh, involved in some of these similar kind of companies, but uh, in healthcare more generally, and that is Schroeder UK Public Private, SUPP, the former Woodford Patient Capital Trust. They've had some annual results, and I don't think they make quite such good reading. No, they don't, unfortunately. So these were annual results for the year to the end of December. Uh, and to be fair, I think we talked about the NAV at the end of December. They published it a couple of weeks ago, so we already knew where it was coming out. But for completeness, we'll run through the results. The NAV was down 29% uh, last year. The share price fell 19%. Uh, and uh, quoted holdings were down 42%. And that obviously contributed quite a large part of the NAV reduction. Uh, and that included Rutherford Health uh, was the largest detractor. The value of that was written down from 81 million to 34 Unquoted holdings were also down 16%, and obviously they reduced the NAV too. But the story has kind of moved on quite a bit since the end of uh, last year. At that point, they had uh, gearing levels of about 32%. But subsequent to that, I think, again, we, we have discussed this before, they've made a number of disposals. So Rosetta Capital bought a basket of holdings, and also they sold, or rather Sanofi acquired, 
uh, KMAB as well. So these were kind of two quite big liquidity events. And what that means that as at the middle of April, the net cash position of this particular investment trust was 3%. And what that means is it allows the Schroeder managers to invest in uh, new companies. So they're looking at two new private companies and two new public companies during this year. Yes, I think that's important in terms of the, this particular saga because it means that, you know, for the first time we may get to a point where we're actually seeing the kind of things that the new managers want to invest in rather than dealing with the legacy holdings that they've inherited and some of the difficult decisions they've had to make about that. So that could be uh, the start of uh, better times. Well, we'll have to see how that goes. Let's move on and talk about some of the property trusts that have actually produced audited figures in the first case. So that's Aberdeen Standard European Logistics Income. We've been getting a lot of NAV updates from uh, property companies, but these are ones uh, actual formal results. So that's ASLI, Aberdeen Standard European Logistics Income. How did they do last year? Yeah, they had a good year, actually. So annual results to the end of December last year. NAV total return up 13.6%. Share price to a return of 26.6%. As the shares move from a 4% discount to a 1% premium. So that's all pretty positive. When we talked about the backdrop for logistics before, uh, rent collection for last year was 97%. Uh, and that meant that earnings per share we're actually up year on year, so 14.8 euro cents versus 9.6 in 2019. So a positive year for Aberdeen Standard European Logistics Income. Next up is uh, Home REIT, one of the trusts that IPO'd last year. Again, one with a, uh, a self-proclaimed social impact purpose, appealing to people's conscience as well as to their wallets, I suppose you could say. Uh, Home REIT, H-O-M-E, so unsurprisingly. What were their results been like since they uh, came to market? Yeah, they've been going quite well, actually. So interim results uh, from the 12th of October to the end of February. And to your point, they raised $240 million, uh, in that IPO last year. So in that particular time, uh, their NAV was up just short of 5%. But it's really to see what they've, they've done in terms of the IPO proceeds. And actually, those net IPO proceeds were fully deployed within five months. And that was ahead of target. So the portfolio now consists of just over 570 properties, uh, and as they put it, just over 3,000 beds. So that all seems pretty positive. To date, uh, rent collection rates are 100%, which is positive, but equally kind of what you expect, uh, certainly at this stage. Uh, and the fund is on track to pay a minimum total dividend at 2.5p for the financial period from IPO to the end of August this year. So it looks like a good start for this one. Yeah, so just to remind people, this is a trust that whose purpose is to buy and to uh, create high-quality homeless accommodation, so housing for the uh, the homeless, uh, and which would, they hope will benefit from uh, inflation-linked leases. So if you are one of those who believe that uh, inflation is coming, uh, this is the kind of yielding stock that you might want to look at because it has got a lot of index-link uh, protection in there. Uh, there might be other factors, of course, to play. Finally, Standard Life Investments Property Income, SLI. I've noticed this trust, they've been actually performing quite well in the marketplace. Uh, what have their results been like? Yeah, so it was, a, it was a tough year for them last year. So these are annual results to the end of December. Uh, in that time, the NAV total return was down about 5% or so, and that's really reflects the, the hit to valuations from the pandemic in the first half of the year. But it's the share price total return. That was down nearly 30% as the shares moved from a 1% premium to a 27% discount. Uh, though actually, they, they have been buying back shares. About £6 million worth of shares were completed uh, as at uh, the 23rd of April. But it's still a you know substantial portfolio. It's valued at £438 million uh, at the end of 2020. And they've given some detail around their rent collection as well. So it, it came out about 94% rent collection in 2020. Uh, and that was down from 99% in 2019. And earnings per share were also down unsurprisingly, but they went from 4.76p to 4.1p. Uh, and so they paid out dividends of 3.808p uh, in respect of 2020. And that's equivalent to 80% of the 2019 level. So well, what's been behind? I mean, I've noticed that the shares have been moving up a little bit. Is it just discount coming in or is it uh, why are people looking afresh at this particular trust? It had such a uh, disappointing year last year. No, it's a good question. And I think just broadly speaking, I think there has been more interest in the UK commercial property sector uh, over the last few months. I think people recognise the fact that 
some of these names were trading on quite wide discounts and obviously Standard Life uh, would be amongst them. And I think equally people realise that uh, as and when we return to normality in this country and there is a pickup in the economy, then property will be a beneficiary of that. Uh, now, as we've discussed in previous weeks, what does that mean for retail and offices? There are still questions to be answered there. But I think there's definitely been a bit of a following wind, particularly as these property companies have been able to increase their dividends back up, not necessarily to the kind of pre-COVID levels, but we've certainly seen movement in terms of their dividends. Uh, and, and, you know, the, those yields, people still need income and those yields are not unattractive. Indeed, they're not. OK, so that brings us to the end of this podcast this week. Uh, I'd like to mention that uh, as part of the offering in the uh, the Moneymakers Circle, which is our subscription offering, there is going to be another short podcast this week about uh, golden Bitcoin. If uh, anyone's interested in that, that's uh, where you can find that particular podcast. It's interesting to talk about those two uh, fast-moving instruments and then whether you call them securities or commodities or whatever you like to call them anyway gold and bitcoin are the subject of that particular podcast that all remains to say thank you simon for your time again this week and um, we'll look forward to tracking uh, how the markets move and of course how that uh, branding exercise at aberdeen goes over the coming weeks this has been a moneymakers investment trust podcast these podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels you can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.